listening to the Plugged In Podcast, presented by the Institute for Energy Research. To find out more about our work, visit our website at instituteforenergyresearch.org. Welcome back to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Stevens. I'm a policy analyst here at the Institute for Energy Research. My guest today, making his third appearance on the show, is Stephen F. Hayward. Professor Hayward is currently Senior Resident Scholar at the Institute of Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley, a contributor to the Powerline blog where he hosts his own podcasts, and he's the author of six books, including most recently, Patriotism is Not Enough, Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns, and the Arguments that Redefined American Conservatism. Professor Hayward, thanks for joining me today. Well, it's great to join you, Alex, and IER anytime. Yeah, so last time we spoke was about a year ago, and uh, I had you on the show to sit down and discuss what 2020 had in store for us. And uh, I went back and listened to that episode, and neither one of us had a global pandemic uh, on our horizon. But um, obviously, we talked a lot about the election, and uh, some things that did pop up were blackouts and wildfires in California. Um, Berkeley had just banned uh, natural gas and new buildings there. Um, something that I just read today, uh, they're doing a similar thing in San Francisco. Uh, so there's obviously a ton of topics that I think our listeners might want to hear you discuss. But, you know, I think a good place to start is um, a recent art- article over the summer that you published in, uh, I believe it was Commentary, um, where you explained how you ran afoul of uh, uh, campus cancel culture. And that uh, that situation had to do with a graduate seminar that uh, you were teaching that offered um, some sort of alternate perspectives on environmental policy. And from the course description, it seemed like the course uh, included some ideas like uh, Terry Anderson's free market environmentalism, uh, Eleanor Ostrom's governing the co- the commons, and you discuss eco-modernism, a bunch of sort of uh, heterodox perspectives on environmental issues. And something that you pointed out in the article is that you deliberately chose not to include climate change in the course description. So uh, could you just walk us through that decision and then how things played out offering this course uh, last spring? Yeah, so it's kind of a long story and I don't want to drone on and on about it. So the short version goes something like this. First of all, a couple sentences on how how I oddly came to be at Berkeley in the first place. And I've been anchored mostly in the political science department and the law school doing old fashioned political science kind of uh, classes. Uh, and, you know, they actually do think they are short of conservatives at Berkeley. They're kind of confused about what to do about it. But, but the long story short is I like Gonzo assignments. So I thought, all right, I'll be an inmate there for a couple or three years. And then along came the Graduate School of Public Policy, the Goldman School, which is usually ranked number one or two in those U.S. news rankings of graduate programs in public policy. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what to make of those rankings. They, they rank everything these days. And the dean there, who's uh, you know sort of a smart traditional liberal, uh, Henry Brady, uh, he thought, and they had a couple of donors and many alumni, by the way, who were saying, you know, the school leans too far to the left. You ought to have um, some conservative content or conservative perspectives in the curriculum. And so the dean invited me a couple of times to come over there and spend the year as a visiting professor in that department. Uh, and so that's how it all came about. And you know, Dean Brady, by the way, even though, as I say, he leans to the left, he's a fan of Hayek. He's a fan of James Q. Wilson. He says, our students need to know those perspectives, even if they don't agree with them or reject them. They need to at least hear about them. And who better to hear it from than a real conservative? So, all right, I agree to do this. And 
he said, you know, come up with a graduate seminar. And that's where I came up with the one and, and you summarized it pretty well. It was called uh, Free Market Environmentalism, I think Eco-Modernism, Degrowth and Other Heterodox Perspectives. And so Free Market Environmentalism, you mentioned the famous book by that title of Terry Anderson and Don Leal. I have taught that book before uh, in undergraduate classes uh, elsewhere. And you know, that book's been very successful. It's gone through four or five editions and sold 100,000 copies or something. Uh, and then eco-modernism is a kind of a soft, progressive, technocratic approach uh, that's very different from the old school Malthusianism of environmentalism. And it's controversial, but uh, it, it sort of appeals across the spectrum and some serious people advocate it. And then degrowth is actually the old fashioned Malthusianism with a new name. Uh, and they're you know, serious people, including some on the Berkeley faculty, but also elsewhere who say, no, no, we need to reverse economic growth and you know, so forth. And, I had planned, by the way, to have speakers, uh, guest speakers who represent those points of view come to class to you know, present it themselves and argue with me and the students and whatever. So, and then, yeah, I left out climate change on purpose because among other things, I think climate change has eaten environmentalism alive. You know, everything's reduced to climate change now. Um, by the way, the, the big new thing now is you can find a whole lot of academic articles that are about three things together climate change, COVID-19, and race, and racism. Of course. You, know, you get all the hot button <laughs> issues together. So I actually think there's a lot, even if you are a convinced climate change um, catastrophist or alarmist, or I, I don't actually like all that vocabulary, but that's what we've got. Even if you're one of the persons who thinks that we're headed for disaster in several decades, I think there's a lot that could be done to illuminate policy options by looking at other issues, how we've managed water, forests, conventional air pollution, and then above all, I do like to teach energy literacy. Um, you know, people talk about energy and we gotta have renewables and all the rest of that. And I actually start with something basic. What is a BTU, a British thermal Good place unit? to start, yes. <laughs> right, it's not, it's not, it's by standard joke, it's not an underwear line from Calvin Klein. It's, you know, a measure of energy and how it converts to watts and how it represents and force and power and and, and and so you go through the basics of people are energy literate and boy once you do that then people are on their way and can figure out for themselves what makes sense in a lot of the crazy energy and climate things that come along so i don't even need to talk about climate science just do that and you'll improve the world yeah so just walk yeah. us through the uh the campus's reaction to the seminar that you wanted to hold i mean yeah at, at least hearing about it you know it, it seems like uh, an opportunity to hear a bunch of different perspectives, like sort of the ideal of what you want to go to a university and encounter. Um, yeah. So, you know, what happened is, is the course got announced for the spring. This would have been last uh, about a year ago now, a little more than a year ago, got announced for the spring semester. And, uh, and the students are pretty left leaning at the Goldman School. And some of them said, what the hell is this? And they started poking around on, uh, you know, online. And you know, these days, if you want to find something to be offended by, you can find it. And, you know, I've written lots of stuff, most of it years old, but still there it is, um, expressing, not opposition, but skepticism about same-sex marriage, uh, skepticism about the transgender ideology that's now, uh, you know, uh, uh, sort of dominant in the world, none of which is relevant to class and which I never talk about in class, but that started the Twitter firestorm. It started petitions signed by dozens of students and some faculty to the dean saying, how could you have done this to us? This is terrible. What a horrible person Hayward is and on and on. And the dean, sadly, because uh, I, I do like Dean Brady, uh, and he's been very friendly to me, but he capitulated almost uh, you know, in, in 15 minutes. Um, 
he tried to call me, but didn't wait to actually reach me. And, and then, you know, I actually had a contract and so in formal legal terms, I could have forced them to honor the contract. But on the other hand, I don't really want to waste my time around the ideologically crazed and, you know, have a class that's protested and boycotted and, and, you know, they made the Dean's life miserable. It wasn't just me. They've been after him and threatening to, uh, or asking him to consider resigning. I mean, that's how unhinged a lot of these students are. Uh, and so I decided, forget it. I'm going to go back to the law school where I've been teaching. Um, and the law school is very left-wing at Berkeley. However, it's just a different discipline, right? Law school, legal students are used to arguing about sharply differing views. And you have a a very left-leaning dean, Erwin Chemerinsky, who's nonetheless very much an old-school free speech person. He's been very friendly to me, uh, and you have a thriving Federalist Society at the Berkeley Law, and so I get on just fine there, even though a lot of faculty probably think I'm also nuts. And something you point out in the article is that there are students who are eager to sort of encounter all these perspectives as well. It's not just like uh, sometimes college campus environments get portrayed, you know, painted as just like a liberal monolith, which there are people who are eager to encounter different perspectives and things as well. Yeah, I mean, the, the College Republicans at Berkeley, I mean, it's a big campus, of course, but College Republicans is a pretty popular club with lots and lots of members. Uh, but beyond that, in the undergraduate classes I've taught, I've had quite a number of really smart progressive students uh, who sign up for class, knowing who I am, you know, they do their research. And what they tell me is, uh, we like the challenge, we'd like to argue with you. I say, great. And they also say, some of them, we kind of want to hear something different. You know, we're tired of the same thing in every class. And boy, a lot of them have been really terrific students. And they did make it for a very lively class because, you know, Berkeley students are, tend to be smart. And I get the serious progressive students, you know, a number of Bernie bros, for example. And they really make the classroom experience better for everybody. Um, and I think a lot of colleges, uh, a lot of leftist faculty really don't understand that they're depriving their campuses of some additional liveliness by, uh, by you know, excluding conservatives from faculty and from the curriculum. Yeah, I think this story is pretty important because, you know, it, it, to me, it gets to the heart of why there are so many problems around the climate change debate, where um, it used to be sort of people who were working in the natural sciences who, you know, wanted to raise some objections that that part of the discourse had been sort of shut down. But now, if you're someone who wants to look at different policy options, even that, you know, depart from the sort of the standard sort of technocratic view of the world, even then, uh, trying to depart from that is sort of out of bounds or... Yeah, you know, the, the, the um, I, I'm not sure I call it the dirty little secret, but the, one of the secrets of universities these days is even a lot of liberals, people who are, you know, partisan Democrats, they will tell you quietly that the, the narrowing, uh, the narrowing of perspectives that are allowed on campus of the rigidly enforced conformism is a real problem. And they don't know what to do about it. They kind of lack courage to fight about it. Most professors, to be fair, have got better things to do than engage in these fights. They're busy people. They've got research projects and so forth. Um, but uh, you know, one story I can tell you about is uh, the University of California. Uh, let's see. Uh, yeah, last spring, maybe the end of last year, they announced what essentially was a diversity loyalty oath. So if you're applying for a faculty position or any other important position, you have to do a statement on your commitment to diversity, what you have done on behalf of diversity and what you would do on behalf of diversity if you're hired. 
And I do know a number of liberal faculty at uh, UCLA, at Berkeley, at UC Davis, and probably other campuses said, this is going too far. This starts to sound like a loyalty oath from the McCarthy years. Um, and then what happened, the COVID shutdown came and it, you know, it closed down what were going to be some public debates about it. I was actually organizing a public debate on the matter. And also there was a lot of talk that faculty senates were gonna take this up and say, you know, you know, we're all for diversity in the ordinary sense of the word, but this is going too far. And that all got all got dropped when COVID came along. So we'll see how that goes. But pretty, you know, even even your ordinary liberal thinks things have gotten out of hand. Well, it's comforting to know that there's people eager to at least have a public discussion about it. We know that, you know, when things get to a point where people are afraid to even talk about things, that's the worst of all situations. So, so yeah, you, you end the article uh, discussing the views of Aaron Woldavsky. Did I? Woldavsky. So he's the founding dean of Berkeley's public policy program, and he's somebody who I had never encountered um, before reading about him just in the short part in your article. Can you talk a little bit about his views on, he did some work on sort of criticizing the radical egalitarian uh, movements. And um, he had some criticisms of how that applies to environmentalism. You mind just oh, talking yeah. about that? And then the irony of the fact that, you know, he, he, he was the uh, founding dean of the school there. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, uh, uh, of course, uh, he's kind of forgotten because he passed away way back in 1994. That's a long time ago now. At, I think in his mid-60s, you know, way too young, uh, a legendary prominent political scientist in the 60s and 70s. He'd been chairman of the political science department, and then the university at Berkeley asked him to found the public policy school. Now, Wadowski's an old liberal, an old New Deal liberal. Uh, it's pretty, I've read most of his work, and it's very interesting stuff. Uh, it's very critical of liberal social policy, but sometimes from the left for not being ambitious enough he didn't seem to be terribly interested in conservatives or conservative critiques of uh, social policy. Uh, but by degrees, as he got older, he moved more to the right, not so much ideologically, but in opposition to the radical left. And he started making out as early as the late 60s that the core principle for the radical left now is, and he called it that, radical egalitarianism. Uh, and he anticipated an awful lot of what's going on today, starting back in the 1970s, including, by the way, he was Jewish. He said, in the fullness of time, Jews are going to be demonized as part of, he didn't quite put it this way, but the way you would today if you were writing it is, Jews are going to be associated with white supremacy, even though you know, anti-Semitism was always one of the core principles of real white supremacists in this country. And that certainly is what happened now with Jews on campus in a lot of places. Um, and the way Israel is described as this outlaw nation and so forth. Um, but then when it came to environmental issues, which he took up starting in the 1980s, because he did a lot of work on risk regulation and risk assessment, uh, he said, looks to me like environmentalism is just another avenue for radical egalitarianism to gain more control over wealth, over resources, and for redistributionist schemes. Uh, and, and the more he would investigate particular environmental issues, whether it was you know, DDT, uh, Superfund, toxic waste, and finally climate change, he said this is all grotesquely exaggerated. Uh, the, the scientific foundation is very flimsy. Uh, and I end my article by saying, never mind me. I mean, you know, there are a lot of stories of someone who's a conservative who runs afoul of people on the campus left. Uh, my views on a lot of these issues are indistinguishable from Waldowski's, even though we're in different parties. And he could, my point, he could not be hired today at the school that he founded 
And that ought to be a sobering thing for the people who run the University of California or any university. Um, because he was, you know, no conservative, but he departed from the orthodoxy. Uh, and, you know, today he would be just as objectionable to the, the woke Arati, as I call them, you know, the woke student mob as I would be. I guess shifting to the election, can you give us just sort of a, a lay of the land, I guess, of how we should be thinking about this uh, divided government and then um, what should uh, limited government people be focusing their, their attention on uh, in terms of energy policy with this government? Uh, Going forward. Yeah, yeah. This is the maybe the. I mean, you know, I'm an academic, political scientist, and historian, partly by background and formal training. And I think this may be the strangest presidential election in American history. I don't think we've ever seen anything quite like this. Where, uh, first of all, I'll go through a couple points here that are just amazing to me. The incumbent president, Mr. Trump, he got 11 million as of today's count more votes than he got four years ago. Uh, Normally incumbents who are defeated lose a lot of votes from their first election. That was true of Hoover, Jimmy Carter, George H.W. Bush. It's astounding that you could gain as much political support as Trump did and apparently lose. Uh, you know, we're still fighting about vote counts and all the rest. Okay. Um, and it's also unheard of for someone to get a record number of votes for president, as Joe Biden did, and have his party do so poorly all the way down the ballot, not just House and Senate, but state legislatures too. Uh, In other words, if you just forget the presidential election, this election was a stunning triumph for the Republican Party. Uh, And it's freaking out everybody these days, including some Republicans, I think, who expected to lose. So now it's a confusing scene because everyone says, well, we're going to have gridlock in Washington. Um, And my first pass on this is is that uh, I like gridlock. Uh, Gridlock, as I joke, is the next best thing to constitutional government. and you know, usually when you have gridlock, it means the government's not screwing things up even worse. Um, and maybe, I don't know, you can be optimistic and say you might get some bipartisan cooperation on some mild reforms to entitlements and spending, possible, I don't know, uh, um, I doubt it, but it's not impossible. Um, meanwhile, I think it's quite clear that the Green New Deal is completely dead for the time being. Um, a lot of other extravagant ideas of the environmental left and other parts of the left, I think, are dead for the time being. So the big question is, uh, are, is the Biden administration going to try and do things through the executive branch, you know, with new regulations? Uh, and I, you know, I think um, that is possible. You may see some uh, uh, stronger regulations on uh, hydraulic fracturing for oil and gas. And I think that'll have a mixed effects on things. Uh, the other thing I think that, um, uh, well, the other question is, is will the administration give states like California wider latitude to regulate automobiles and so forth? That could happen. And then the other big question is, is whether Biden will try and bring back the clean power plan that Obama tried to put through based on the 1970 Clean Air Act. And you know, that uh, the Clean Power Plan, which went through a formal EPA rulemaking process, was in big trouble in the courts before Trump came along and pulled the plug on it. So I, and I, if anything, the courts will be more hostile to it now with the changing composition of the Supreme Court. So I think uh, if Biden wants to try and make progress on his pledge to have a zero emission power sector in 15 years, he probably has to start over again with a new plan that you know, based on the Clean Air Act, and I'm not sure how, sure how that's gonna work because I think any plan based on a, an old piece of legislation meant for a different kind of problem, it's just a square peg in a round hole. I think it's not gonna work very well. And he may ask Congress to pass something, but I doubt there's much appetite for that. 
And you recently published a different article at Real Clear Energy where um, you point out that there might be some unique things to a Biden presidency where if the assumption is that he's going to be a one-term president, though, it might motivate him to, if he wants to put his stamp on climate policy, to use the National Emergencies Act possibly as as a vehicle for, for climate policy. Uh, what's the con- concern there? Yeah, well, that's a wild card because we, yeah. we, you know, we have this National Emergencies Act that's been around since the mid-70s, and it's been used by every president for all kinds of different things. Most people never heard of it until Trump proposed to use it to pay for his border wall that Congress wouldn't give him money for. And he said, I'm going to take some Defense Department money and use it to build the wall. There was litigation. I forget how that all played out. Um, Biden might say, uh, and look, there are other Democrats who said they would declare climate a national emergency on day one. And since Biden has said climate's one of his top priorities, it's conceivable he will do that. Now, what flows from that? I mean, you'd have some budgetary latitude from already appropriated money in different departments. Uh, you know, the Pentagon, the defense budget's the biggest item in the budget. Well, actually, that's not true. It's health and welfare and entitlements are bigger. But as far as discretionary spending goes, it's the biggest chunk of the federal budget. And you could see Biden proposing to divert several billion dollars to various green energy boondoggles. Um, Uh, Although one of them I might actually be halfway for, which is the Pentagon can develop nuclear reactors without going through the regulatory process of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. They do that for their new submarines and aircraft carriers. Well, if the Pentagon wanted to develop some old-fashioned land-based nuclear power plants of whatever size, I'd be probably fine with that, I think. but you know that's even though people like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has now said she's open to nuclear power, I think there's not much enthusiasm for it. Uh, you know, if you're not killing fossil fuels, what fun is it for the left? So uh, I think that's the big question mark. And you know, there's going to be a lot of litigation and a lot of fuss about that if he does it. But it's possible. There's always the the fact that he's going to be constrained a bit too by by his party i mean electorally in states like pennsylvania and these states are not um going to be thrilled about you know an all-out assault on the fossil fuel industry no i think that's absolutely true and in fact you 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 could tell they had figured that out before the election and you know everyone could see how fast they were retreating on the ban fracking wild talk because that was going to cost them pennsylvania and almost did um and you know, Michigan, most people don't know this, there is a little bit of oil and gas production in Michigan. Not a lot, but it's certainly a huge user of energy in the auto manufacturing and you know, other related industries in Michigan. So yeah, that's another state that you could botch very easily if you go overboard with these things. Is there anywhere else in, in energy and environment <laughs> policy that you might see uh, the uniqueness of a Biden administration uh, where the, where concern for wanting to make his mark in his one term, uh, where that jumps out to you? Yeah, I mean, you hear that they're going to fiddle around with the waters of the United States rule that Trump had relaxed. Excuse me, I I think the big, so all that's possible. You could see lots of things spun out of EPA, mostly EPA, maybe a couple other agencies. However, I think the big thing to watch for is who gets installed at EPA. You know, one of the Supposed front runners for the job is Mary Nichols, who runs the environmental agency out here in California. And she's a very controversial person. Uh, and you could easily see Senate Republicans, if they keep the Senate as it looks like they will, saying, nope, she's not going to be confirmed. And you might have to get somebody not quite as aggressive uh, and outspoken as Nichols. 
Uh, and then, you know, who's appointed the Office of Air? All, all the little sub-appointments are very important in driving these things through. And that's going to take a while because they're, you know, going to be trying to staff up uh, the whole administration. And so I think they won't get off to a very fast start on that. What about the new ju- judiciary then uh, in terms of cases coming before the court? Is there anything on your radar that next uh, few months that we should be paying attention to there? You know, I'm not yeah. sure. I haven't kept up with the docket uh, of cases moving up the, in this area, but often they come up pretty quickly these yeah. days. So, you know, there was the, I think it, I think it was a district court decision a few months ago that stopped the Dakota Access Pipeline from operating pending a new environmental review by the Army Corps of Engineers, which is going to take a year or something like that. And I'm not sure if that got appealed or not. I don't, I don't remember now. But I think that's certain. And, you know, if they try and bring back the clean power plan, that's going to rock it up very quickly, maybe even to the Supreme Court pretty fast. Um, and uh, I know there's some, uh, there was a very important decision, oh, three, four years ago now, where the Supreme Court made it easier for people with property rights claims, takings claims, to get into federal court, which was always harder to do. And that could change a lot of things. You could see some property rights cases moving up much more quickly than they have in the past, and that would be important. Uh, And then the bigger thing going on across the domain, but it really especially applies in the environmental area, is there's a lot of rethinking of the famous Chevron doctrine, which for listeners who don't know what it is, that's, I've always called the get out of jail free card for bureaucrats. It basically says in simple terms that uh, when a statute is ambiguous, the agency gets to decide how to implement it. And there's been a lot of second thoughts being expressed by judges, uh, uh, Supreme Court judges and elsewhere the last few years saying, maybe we're giving the bureaucrats too much leeway and maybe we gotta look a little harder at their rulemakings. I think all the momentum is on that side right now. But of course, courts don't just get to make up new things. They've got to get cases brought before sure. them that allow them to uh, uh, you know, revise previous doctrines. And I, I think you're going to see some real attempts to chip away at it in the next few years, regardless of who the president is. Yeah, before we go, then, is there anything that you're working on that you want to share for our listeners? Uh, well, I, uh, some listeners may be interested in this. I'm, I'm doing a short biography of M. Stanton Evans, uh, who was one of my mentors out of college. He died about five years ago. Important conservative figure. But by the way, you want to go back 40 years ago now when I was getting out of college. He's the first writer that I noticed who was saying everything we're told about the energy crisis is wrong. We're not running out of oil and gas. There's lots of it around. The problem is ridiculous regulation and price controls and he understood that earlier than most people did. And it was about the same time I discovered Julian Simon, who was making a broader argument along the same lines. And so anyway, uh, I worked for Stan for a while right out of college and kept up with him. And uh, long story, but I decided he's worth a, a short intellectual biography. So I'm working on that. I'm behind, of course, but, you know, it'll get done sometime soon. Hey, you can find Professor Hayward's work at powerlineblog.com. Professor Hayward, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. Thank you.